the plan is, as Father mentions, I'm going to talk about infant creator and finite creation, Aquinas in the eternity of the world debate. The basic plan is I want to give a general, what I call geography of the debate. What are the, what are the positions on the eternity of the world uh, that were staked out, especially in the Middle Ages? Uh, I want to give you a, a quick overview of, of Aquinas's, argue, Aquinas's position in that debate and his arguments for it. Okay. Uh, I want to evaluate those arguments. Uh, I am actually suspicious of them in some ways, right? in a lot of ways. And then I want to look at his, his attempt at refutations of other people's arguments in the debate, about which I'm much more optimistic. Okay. And then finally, I want to answer what I think is St. Bonaventure's best objection to St. Thomas's uh, criticism of one of those arguments. So that's the plan. We'll see if we can do all that. Okay, uh, first of all, in the way of introduction to the debate, the attorney of the world debate is something that, you know, as I looked into this to prepare for the, the lecture, really runs, it's been with us as long as there's been philosophy. I think in some ways you can see the pre-Socratics are worrying about this issue, Plato and Aristotle have their different views on this issue, it runs through the Middle, middle Ages. Early moderns. Uh, this is a, this is a key issue. You know, Kant, as we'll, I'm going to talk about this, makes this debate one of his antinomies in the critique. Right. Um, really, when people talk about con- arguments for God's existence in contemporary philosophy religion, they're mainly talking unawares about the, the debate about the eternity of the world from the medieval, medieval period. Okay. Uh, one thing to note, though, for the medievals, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with arguments for God's existence. Right. It, it's a, it's an issue in and of itself. Uh, a couple of points, you know, just in, in the way of stage setting. I don't like eternity uh, in the in the name for this debate, okay? Because when we hear eternity, especially in the Thomistic natural theological t- tradition, what we hear there is something more akin to God's timelessness, right? Uh, that things are eternal in as much as they aren't subject to change, they aren't subject to temporal description at all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. No one in this debate is really saying anything like that about the world, okay? I think it's better to think of this as, even though this is the way the debate is talked about, you know, in like the important anthologies, even Thomas's short treatise on this is probably best tre- translated as, as the title, as On the Eternity of the World. I think it will be better to say what we're talking about is the infinity of the world here, right? Whether or not the world is infinite in a temporal sense. And what I mean by that is, is the world, does the world have an infinite past, right? And will it have an infinite future? Okay, those are the, those are the questions. Okay. Um, now, a few few things we should say about what we mean by world too before we jump in. And here I'll, I'll pick up with the, the prepared lecture. Some comments on what is meant by world are appropriate. Certainly words such as universe or cosmos are good candidate synonyms for world. And certainly what we mean by world is probably something like natural world. Nevertheless, I once again counsel restraint. Universe and cosmos carry connotations of a structured, law-governed, or otherwise unified system of nature. And there is no reason to foreclose against an earlier, chaotic stage of an evolving world without good reason for doing so at this point. Maybe the law-governed universe is finite, but the world in a prior chaotic stage beyond our scientific ken is infinite in duration. One might then be tempted just to think of the world as matter. 
But what matter ultimately is, and whether it comes to be or passes away, is itself no source of small controversy. In the ancient and medieval treatments of the debate, world is mostly taken, in my reckoning, to be a collection of mobile or changing beings. So the question of the infinity of the world comes to whether leading up to the present state of the universe, there has been an infinite series of prior changes of state or law law governed or otherwise. This is certainly how St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure seem to frame the issue. So that is how I now pose the question. Of course, this approach begs some weighty questions regarding the relationship between time and change, and what likely have, which likely have consequences for our conclusions regarding the prior infinity of the world, but these are actually questions that St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure, I think, answer more or less the same. So we'll do well not to wade in those treacherous waters at this point, though it probably will come up. Okay, our dialectical geography. As I mentioned earlier, Kant takes up the infinity of the world as one of his famous antinomies of pure reason. Kant notes the seeming impeccability of the traditional proof for the finitude of the world based on the premise that, quote, if one assumes that the world has no beginning in time, then up to every point in time an eternity has elapsed. And hence, an infinite series of states of the world, each following another, has passed away, end quote. Here, Kant summarizes what I call a finitist position, That is, the claim that the debate can be resolved at the first-order level by an already available proof demonstrating that the world is finite. On Kant's gloss, this argument, which is highly intuitive to many historically significant philosophers and the proverbial man on the street, basically runs to the effect that the world must have a beginning at a finitely distant point in the past because there simply cannot be an infinite series of events that have actually occurred leading up to the present. Otherwise, we would have to say there was a completed or actual infinity of moments leading up to the present, which is at least prima facie impossible. This is more or less the basic line of reasoning followed by some of the great Muslim philosophers of the Middle Ages and contemporary proponents of the updated Kalam argument for God's existence. So here on your handout, I give you just a, a basic scheme for that argument, the finitist argument. Premise one, if the world is infinite, then there has been an infinite series of actually occurring events and or moments leading up to the present. Premise two, it is impossible for there, for there to have been an infinite series of actually occurring events and or moments leading up to the present, and therefore the world is finite. Notice the ambiguity between actually occurring events and moments is intentional. As for classical medieval philosophers, at least in the Aristotelian tradition, changes undergone by material substances, what I'm calling events, and the movement of time are inextricable. Not the same thing, but inextricable. So we can come at the issue from either direction and probably get the same result. As we shall see, St. Bonaventure is a finitist whose whose most important contribution to the debate is a premise, is a defense of the second premise that we've highlighted against some of St. Thomas's objections. The finitist argument is all well and good, but Kant believes that there is an equally compelling, even demonstrative in some sense, proof to the contrary on the offer. If we accept the finitist conclusion, then we have to say that there was a bounded first moment or event, that is, a moment for which there is no prior moment. As Kant glosses it, quoting Kant, there must be a preceding time in which the world was not, that is, an empty time. But now... 
uh, no arising of any sort of thing is possible in any uh, in any in an empty time because no part of such a time has in itself prior to another part any distinguishing condition rather than its non-existence whether one assumes that it comes to be itself or through another cause in other words words if the world came to be at a certain moment then there can be no explanation as to why it came to be at this moment rather than another such an inexpl- such inexplicably explicability for the coming to be of the world is unacceptable so we must accept an infinitist conclusion that is the world is infinite in duration the line of argument Kant presents here is not uncommon. He's, you know, he's taking it from the Leibniz-Clark debate, I take it. Um, you, know, you can see Augustine raises something like this worry, though I don't think it's his view in the Confessions. Um, and you know, we, we could come up with more examples. Despite its influence, there is, no good, there is good reason to be dubious about this argument. If we are querying why the world came to be at this moment rather than some other moment, then we are presupposing that there were that, that there were moments before the coming to be of the world. That is, the proponent of this argument assumes that there must be empty time prior to the coming to be of a finite world. If there were empty moments prior to the coming to be of the world, then it would be reasonable to ask why the universe came to be during any one of them rather than some other. Surely nothing about any of these moments would recommend an explanation for the coming to be of the universe. They are supposedly empty, after all. Not even God could have a good reason for picking one empty moment over another, so there could be no explanation for the coming to be of the universe. That's all well and good, but why suppose that prior to the coming to be of a finite universe, there must have been a series of empty moments, finite in number or otherwise? At the very least, this assumption begs the question against the classical Aristotelian view of time, which takes time as the quantity of motion among mobile beings. On such a view, there can be no empty moments. Moreover, the proponent of this argument likewise seems to beg the question against the relationless views of time that also rule out the notion of empty time, at least on my view of them. Thus, we have plausible alternatives in our thinking about time that avoid the argument for, for this side of Kant's antinomy. So if you want to weasel out of the antinomy, you, you have room. Okay. But maybe it's not so bad for the infantist uh, as all of that. I think that what is really going on in this argument is something of a hangover from a much more interesting argument from Aristotle, which is the proof that that primarily motivated the infinitist position in the Middle Ages. Okay, so this is text one on the handout. I'm going to read this one actually. It's from Aristotle's Physics. Plato alone asserts the creation of time, saying that it is simultaneous with the world and that the world came into being. Now, since time cannot exist and is unthinkable apart from now and now is a kind of middle point, uniting as it does in itself both a beginning and an end, a beginning of future time and an end of past time, it follows that there must always be time, for the extremity of the last period of time that we take must be found in some now, since in time we can take nothing but nows. Therefore, since now is both a beginning and an end, there must always be time on both sides of it. But if this is, this is true of time, it is evident that it must be true of motion, time being a kind of affection of motion. So here's what I take it that Aristotle is up to here, what I call the inf- infinitist argument. Premise one, if the world is finite, then there was a first moment before which there was no prior moment. Premise two, it is impossible that there be a first moment before which there was no prior moment. Therefore, three, the world is infinite. 
Notice that there, there is no gross assumption that a finite universe entails the occurrence of any empty time. Indeed, Aristotle will have nothing of the idea of empty time. Rather, his worry is that the very notion of a first moment is incoherent. It is contrary to the very definition of moment. The second premise is where all the work is done in the infinitist argument. Uh, Aristotle supports it with the claim that every moment, every present, is always a middle point uh, between a past moment and a future moment as a matter of logical or metaphysical necessity. Thus, a moment before which or after which there is no prior or subsequent moment is an impossibility in the most absolute sense. Thus, the world cannot have a first moment. And if and as you have already likely concluded, nor can it have a final moment. Since time and change are inextricable, as we're supposing, the world of mobile being is temporally infinite in both directions, right? Forward and backward. There are a number of other arguments for the infinity of the world uh, that were proffered by medieval, medieval infinitists and even Aristotle, but this is the one I think that was the most influential. So we're going to just use that. Now, Kant is having nothing of either of these positions. That is not because he believes that, that they have reasoned poorly, or even that at the first order level they have explicitly appealed to a premise that is obviously false. The debate uh, constitutes an antinomy for Kant, a conceptual trap that a, uh, that a common misuse of reason leads the overly ambitious metaphys- metaphysician into. Both sides, says Kant, suffer from a shared blunder, that is, realism about time. The finitist and the infinitist both tacitly assume that the world is in itself temporal, and therefore we can demonstrate one way or another whether the quantity of its temporality is either finite or infinite. This assumption leads to, a contradic- to contradictory conclusions, so we have a demonstration against it. At least that's what Kant thinks. Thus, Kant does not attempt to resolve the issue, but dissolve it uh, by opting for anti-realism about time. Temporality is something we project into a numinally atemporal ultimate world. At least that's how I read Kant. I know that's probably controversial because it's a reading of Kant. Okay, so if anyone's writing a dissertation on on Kant on time, I, I will accept correction. Okay. Now, like Kant, Saint Thomas does not attempt to resolve the debate either way. Saint Thomas recognizes that that both the infinitist and the finitist positions have considerable intellectual grip. Unlike Kant, however, Aquinas does not endorse anything akin to anti-realism about time. Following Aristotle, St. Thomas takes time as the quantity of motion among mobile beings, and mobility is is in fact the most apparent thing to the senses in his view. Thus, for Aquinas, time is real indeed. Rather than defending anti-realism about time, St. Thomas argues for, and I want to be careful with the title, Okay, but I'll explain it. Skeptical fideism about the finitude of the world. Okay, skeptical fideism about the finitude of the world. Okay, skeptical because Aquinas believes he can demonstrate that there can be no demonstration one way or another regarding the infinity or finitude of the world, the ultimate, ultimate duration of which is beyond our rational ken. Okay, so Aquinas thinks there's a fact of the matter of the duration of the world, right? It's just beyond our kin to rationally demonstrate what that is. I say fideism because St. Thomas does indeed believe the world is finite, but only because he believes that, quote, in the beginning, or excuse me, just that the in the beginning of Genesis commits the Catholic to such a conclusion. 
we, we need to be cautious here because I think there's a tendency to think that St. Thomas is someti- somehow agnostic about the finitude of the world. He is not, right? He's perfectly convinced, maybe with a one probability, right? We debated last night, uh, that the world is finite. He just thinks it's something that comes to him de fide. He's perfectly convinced of this. It's just that it comes de fide, right? It's not something we can demonstrate. Okay. Um, as I put here, that conviction, however, can only come de fide and not via rational demonstration. Though St. Thomas does at one point, which I'm going to make a lot of hay of later, okay, can see that the argument for the finitist position is probable, or more strictly he says it's not devoid of probability. As St. Thomas puts it, uh, like the doctrine of the Trinity, quote, by faith alone do we hold, and by no demonstration can it be proved that the world did not always exist. Okay. So here's your geography. You, you, could, you could claim to prove the world is finite. You could claim to prove the world is infinite. You could go scientific anti-realism and say there's just no fact of the matter. Okay. Uh, or you could go what I'm calling skeptical fideism and say, no, there is a fact of the matter. It's beyond our rational kin, but it's been revealed to us one way or another via, via scripture or some such. Okay. So I think Thomas owes us some things now. I want that demonstration that there's no demonstration. Okay. But then also I think he needs to show us that the purported demonstrations uh, for, the, for the finitist or the infinitist position somehow fail. Otherwise, we're going to be weighing demonstrations. Okay, so let's go into the demonstrations against the demonstrations, where I think I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, in the first part, uh, the Summa, question 46, Saint Thomas asks whether it is possible to demonstrate the infinity or finitude of the world one way or another. In the first article he asks, he argues that no demonstration of the infinity of the world is possible with the following remarks. I'm going to read this text because it's going to be important for us. Nothing except God can be eternal, and this statement is far from impossible to uphold, for it has been shown above that the will of God is the cause of things. Therefore, things are necessary according as it is necessary for God to will them, since the necessity of the effect depends on the necessity of the cause. Now, it was shown above that, absolutely speaking, it is not necessary that God should will anything except himself. It is, not necess- it is not, therefore, necessary for God to will that the world should always exist, but the world exists for as much as God wills it to exist, since the being of the world depends on the will of God as on its cause. It is not, therefore, necessary for the world to be always, and hence it cannot be proved by demonstration. End quotation. Aquinas' point here is that only necessary truths can be demonstrated, and he can demonstrate that it is not necessarily true that the world is temporally infinite. His point seems to be that the world is necessarily infinite only in as much as God wills it to be so. Mm. To, to be so necessarily. Certainly, the divine freedom dictates that God does not necessarily will that the world come to be at all. Creation is a free act. Thus, it is not necessary; is not a necessary truth that there is an infinite world, even if there actually is one. And we then likewise have a demonstration to the effect that there cannot be a demonstration of the temporal infinity of the world. As far as I can tell, this is what St. Thomas is up to in this passage, and I, I call this Aquinas' argument contra the necessity that the world is temporally infinite. <laughs> a clumsy title, but... 
Uh, here's the argument as I see it. If the world is necessarily infinite, then it must be necessary that God will will that the world is infinite. It is not necessary that God will that the world is temporally infinite. Therefore, the world is not necessarily infinite. Okay, maybe I'm not quite understanding Aquinas, what Aquinas is doing here, but I'm a bit troubled by this line of reasoning as it stands. Namely, I fear that there's an equivocation going on behind the word necessary as applied to the world and its infinity. Do we mean de dicto that it is necessary that an infinite world exists, or do we mean de re that necessarily if a world exists, it is infinite? It seems to me that the antecedent of premise one, and in that antecedent, Aquinas must have in mind whether an infinite world, world's existence is necessary or contingent, that is the de dicto notion of necessity, and likewise for premise two. I think to make the thing work, it's got to be de dicto. Thus, the conclusion can only be understood as making the de dicto claim that the existence of uh, the existence of an infinite world, right? Excuse me. That that the existence of an infinite world is a contingent state of affairs whenever it obtains. So I think all he's shown here is that if there's a world, there didn't have to be one. Okay. Uh, notice, however, that such a conclusion is not at all to the point under consideration. Rather, the worry is not over the contingency of an infinite world, but over whether the world, if there is one, is contingently or necessarily infinite. That is, the de re notion of necessity is the relevant concern. The question is not whether it was within God's power to fail to create a world, whatever its duration, but whether, if God creates a world, must it be infinite? Thus, Aquinas' argument, as it seems to me anyway, does not address the issue. Uh, this case is best made by example. It is a contingent fact that water exists, and God is certainly free to decide whether, whether he will create any liquid at all, water or otherwise. Nevertheless, it is necessarily true that if there is to be water, then that stuff will be composed of H2O molecules. Thus, we might say, leaving aside sticky worries about demonstrating necessarily true empirical facts and scientific realism and such, that it is necessary that water is H2O even though God need not have willed that there be water at all. Though water exists contingently, it has an essence dictating that should any water exist, it will necessarily be composed of H2O molecules. For many people, including contemporary subscribers to Aristotelian realism, this, is, this, is, this point is a philosophical commonplace. So let's apply it to the infinity of the world. It might be necessarily true that the world is infinite whenever it exists without it being necessarily the case that the world exists. That is, it could be the case that God need not will that there be a world at all. The act of creation is undetermined, certainly. While it is still necessarily true that if God creates a world, it must be temporally infinite, because that is simply dictated by the nature of mobile being in general. Okay. So, I worry about that particular concern. All right. Now, let's go to Article 2, where Aquinas says... So in, in Article 1, he says, I, I, I think I can show you it's impossible to demonstrate that uh, the world is infinite, right? And then in Article 2, he says, well, I'm going to demonstrate to you that it's impossible to, to demonstrate that the world is finite, okay? So if you look at Text 3, um, the second part of Text 3 really is a very similar argument to the one we just, just discussed, so I'm going to just leave that aside because I think it's, it'll all be the same worry. 
So I just want to read the first half of text three to get what the argument that Thomas has in mind there. So, uh, by faith alone do we hold, and by no demonstration can it be proved that the world did not always exist, as was said above of the mystery of the Trinity. The reason of this is that the newness of the world cannot be demonstrated on the part of the world itself, for the principle of demonstration is the essence of a thing. Now everything according to its species is, is abstracted from here and now, once it is said that that uh, are everywhere and always. Okay. So in this passage, St. Thomas actually makes two arguments uh, against, against proving that the world is, in, is finite, and I'm only going to discuss the first one I just read to you. In the first argument, he appeals to the nature of Aristotelian demonstration. Such demonstration uh, only appeals to the abstracted essence uh, of the object, and therefore it leaves aside any particular accidents of such beings. For example, a demonstration regarding frogs can draw conclusions about their amphibian nature, but not the particular spatial or temporal occurrences of any such creatures. You know, simply knowing that Kermit is a frog doesn't tell us his age or where he is. Thus, Aquinas argues that there can be no demonstration about the particular temporal quantity of the world, since that would be to go beyond the essential to the accidental, which is always beyond the scope of demonstration. Sure, we can get some probabilities about frog accidents based on their essential natures. For instance, it's likely you'll find them near water, they'll have access to flies, etc., etc., but those are probabilities. All right, so the actual duration of the world would seem to be an accidental attribute of the world. So we can have no absolute demonstration of such a duration. Maybe we can say it's probable that the world is finite, but the certainties of faith trump probabilities. Uh, if St. Thomas's argument is sound, we would then have a demonstration that there can be no demonstration at all regarding the actual duration of the world. Okay. Here, too, I fear that the argument is less than convincing, though. First of all, notice that the claim that the finitude of the world is, an accident, is accidental probably begs the question in this context. The essential finitude of the world is exactly what the finitist purports to have demonstrated. Okay. Uh, I really don't like begging the question charges because they always cut both ways, so let's just let that go. Okay, let's see if we can do better. Now, Aquinas is correct to claim that we cannot offer a demonstration of the duration of any particular substance by contemplating its essence. All right. Uh, that's fair enough. Okay. But notice this about our frog, Kermit. Uh, he is mortal, uh, as are all frogs. And maybe Kermit's mortality is not technically essential to him in the traditional sense, it would enter in. It would not enter into a proper definition of his being a frog. Okay, be that as it may, Kermit's mortality is not a contingent attribute, though either. Uh, it is a logical property, or propria, an accidental attribute that follows from or is entailed by his essence. Thus, though Kermit's actual age or eventual lifespan are accidental and therefore indemonstrable, his status as a being that will ultimately snuff it. Right. Uh, is, is something that we can indeed em demonstrate based on our knowledge of his nature, quay frog. Okay. Well, the analogy between our frog example and the ultimate duration of the world should be clear. Clearly, there, are, there, is in no, there is no way to demonstrate the actual duration of the world in the Aristotelian sense or, or its ultimate lifespan. However, that is not to say that no demonstration can be made regarding its finitude or infinity. I'm happy to grant that infinite and finite are, you know, are accidental. Nevertheless, just like our mortal frog, it may be the case that the ultimate duration of the universe is a necessary accident entailed by its essence per se. 
the world may be mortal just like Kermit, or immortal like an angel, and these sorts of propria are indeed demonstrable from the very nature of such beings. The notion of the essential nature of the world does strike me a bit obscure, right? It seems like there's some kind of like compositional fallacy lurking in there somewhere, right? Uh, so I'll admit I'm worried about that. But when we realize that all we mean by the world is the occurrence of mobile being, that suspicion seems to be somewhat assuaged, right? We've got a nature, a mobility, that we could ask, would it, could it go on forever or must it have gone on forever? All right, so I'm not convinced at all that Thomas has proven there can be no proof in this vicinity. Okay, so now I want to turn and look at his attempts to refute the, the proofs for the finitist and the infinitist positions that are on offer, okay, which we've already looked at. So recall Aristotle's infinitist proof uh, you, you have in your handout. As we discussed earlier, all the work is done in premise two. And that's the claim that it is impossible that there be a moment before which there is a first moment, before which there is no first moment. And Aristotle defends it by defining the very notion of a moment or a temporal present as a transition point between a past moment and a future moment. Every present is a, is a movement from past to future, and therefore the notion of a bound moment, a moment with, with neither a past nor a future, is ultimately incoherent. St. Thomas makes two primary cases against Aristotle's premise two. In the interest of time, we're only going to look at one of them. This is text four. And aside from the other arguments, which he does not touch upon here, this is Tom, according to Thomas, it is evident that the arguments which he does give here to prove time is eternal are not demonstrative. For if we suppose that at some moment time began to be, it is not necessary to assume a prior moment except in imaginary time. Just as when we say there, there is no body outside of the heavens, what we mean by outside is merely an imaginary something. Okay, so that's probably all we need from the quote. Here's my explanation. Here Aquinas argues that the fact that we cannot imagine a bound moment is not alone enough to show that there can be no such thing. In the same way that, that bounded space or a spatially finite universe conjures pictures of a space beyond space and you know, all the puzzles, you know, can you throw a rock over the edge of space or how thick's the wall dividing space from non-space. Uh, the notion of bound moments uh, suggests images of a prior time to all time, which is, of course, an absurdity that will cause metaphysical trouble. Aquinas's point, however, is that the spatial finitist, to the spatial finitist, space beyond space is nothing. There is no such thing. And puzzling over how thick the wall binding space might be is to fall into what Elizabeth Anscombe calls bad picture thinking. Likewise, the temporal finitist claims that the time before the first moment is nothing. There is no such time, and puzzling is bewitchment by our imaginations. Aquinas sees no need to define the notion of a moment as a past to future transition. So there is no reason to think our imaginations are particularly instructive on this matter. At the very least, there are sufficiently plausible alternative ways of thinking about the present that do not merely reduce it to a past-to-future transition. And this notion has raised enough seemingly intractable puzzles that we do well not to settle into such a conception uh, with much haste. Okay. So however under understandable Aristotle's error might be, we are within our rights to conclude that he has erred in this case. He's made a mistake. Uh, or, or at least we should conclude that one does well to suspend judgment regarding the second premise of the infinite proof. Okay. Let's talk about, and this, I think this is much more interesting, 
Aquinas' refutation of the proof for the infinitude of the world. Okay, so recall the finitist argument. Um, it's, on, it's still on your handout. And once again here too, the second premise right, is, is where all the work is going to get done. All right. So St. Thomas rejects premise two because he maintains that certain sorts of infinite causes, causal series are impossible. That is, Aquinas claims that it is epistemically possible. Excuse me, I said impossible here. He, he, let me start that again. St. Thomas rejects premise two because he maintains that certain sorts of infinite causal series are possible. Okay. That is, Aquinas claims that it is epistemically possible, proceeding from what is seen by faith, right, for all we know, that an infinite series of actually occurring events or moments have led up to the present moment. For all we know, that may well have occurred. No doubt. The notion that there can be infinite series of causally related events or moments that have actually occurred does offend against many people's basic intuitions. And to understand why St. Thomas stakes this seemingly odd claim, uh, we will need to make some careful distinctions. Okay, first I want to distinguish between a multitude and a causal series. Okay, uh, I think Thomas really has this distinction in mind. There's one point in one of the quotes I give you where it seems like he uses them interchangeably, but I think the weight goes that he thinks there's a difference between a multitude and a, and a series. Okay. Um, so, first we need to distinguish between what St. Thomas calls a multitude and a causal series. A multitude, I take it, is a completed collection of things. All right, you, you, they're all together. For example, the set of books on my office shelf is a multitude, as would, as would be the set of trees in the park. A causal series is an order of events, or, or substances, or constituents, in which each iteration of the order is caused by its immediately prior iteration. Okay. For example, the set of events leading to the sinking of the eight ball or the collection of physiological processes enabling me to read this sentence are causal series. Notice that multitudes do not entail the existence of causal series. An arbitrarily collected set of things like the Eiffel Tower, my left shoe in Mount Rushmore, might constitute a multitude but there is no causal ordering among them. In some cases, however, a causal series may entail the existence of a multitude. For, ex for example, the causal ordering of the physiological processes enabling me to, to read this sentence entails a multitude. All those processes occur simultaneously as a complete collection in order for me to write this sentence or read this sentence. At one point, St. Thomas denies that the, that an actually infinite multitude is possible. Not just an idea, he gives an argument for it. Not just on the basis of human intuition, but uh, for some rather interesting reasons. That is, he argues that it is impossible for there to be a completed collection of actually simultaneously existing things. Okay, This is text 6. Um, I'm going to just skip to my explanation of it, because I, I don't think there's much controversy what he's saying here. In other words, any actually occurring collection of things must have a definite number of members. Whatever the causal ordering or lack thereof among these members might be, there are, according to St. Thomas, no indenumerable, uncountable occurrences in nature, and nor could there be. At least it seems like he's saying in this passage. This doesn't necessarily mean that St. Thomas believes there can be no metaphysical vagaries at all, but only that when it comes to a complete collection of things, there must be a fact of the matter as to how many things there are in such a collection. Um... There is no fact of the matter as to how many members there are in an infinite multitude. 
so there, there can be no actually infinite multitude. Fair enough, or at least at this point, uh, we're not going to put that in content, into contention. Now, let's be careful uh, because we have only considered actually infinite multitudes, and Aquinas would have us distinguish that from uh, actual infinities from potential infinities. Okay. Once again here, this is sort of famous. I'm going to skip that quote and just go to my explanation. Following Aristotle, Aquinas has no problem granting that matter is infinitely divisible, though he denies that matter is ever infinitely divided. The former only entails a potentially infinite multitude. The infinity of, of the, the infinitely numerous divisions that could be made to a body and not the actual infinite, right? The infinity divisions made to this body. The latter entails the occurrence of an actually infinite multitude, which is impossible, as Aquinas has argued. The divisibility of matter, at least on the Aristotelian story and an endless, and an endless number series, give us good reason to conclude that potential infinities are, in fact, actual. There are potential infinities. Okay. All right, that's enough about multitudes. Let's focus now on causal series. St. Thomas, following Aristotle and his Arab commentators, distinguishes between absolute causal series, or what we call often per se causal series, and accidental, or what's often called per accidens causal series. The for- former is a causally ordered series in a very strong sense. Each subsequent iteration of the series requires the continued existence of all prior iterations of the series. For example, the series of physiological processes supporting my reading of the sentence is a per se absolute series. Should any of the more fundamental prior processes fail, all the higher order or posterior processes would fail. Thus, an infinite series of this sort would definitely entail the existence of an actually completed infinite multitude, which is impossible. And Aquinas says, yeah, there could be no infinite per se causal series. Okay. All right, now, the impossibility of an actually infinite multitude might be sufficient to conclude that an infinite per se causal series is impossible. But Because if you have an infinite per se causal series, then there would have to be a corresponding infinite uh, completed multitude. Let's leave that aside, all right, because there's still reason to doubt that such an infinite series is possible independently of what we think of multitudes, okay? I take it that the question here is one of explanation, and this seems to be how Aristotle thinks of these kinds of issues in his arguments for for the first cause. That is, if, if a subsequently occurring iteration of a series requires an in principle incomplete explanation, for example, an infinite series of simultaneously acting causes, then there is no reason for or explanation of that subsequent iteration of the series. By definition, a causal series is one in which every iteration of the series has an explanation in terms of the prior iterations. So there can be no infinite series of per se ordered causes. Fair enough. The point to take away, which will be important for later discussion, is that we can separate Aquinas' prohibition against infinite per se causal series, which he needs for the first cause arguments, from his apparent argument contrary to the possibility of actual infinite multitudes. He doesn't need that to make the first cause arguments work. Okay. Notice that this is this way of thinking about Aquinas' rejection of the infinite series of orders, of uh, infinite series of causal orders, does not commit him to a strong or generalized version of the principle of sufficient reason. We need not take Aquinas as claiming that all facts have exhaustive explanations only that the facts that lie in the train of a causal series have exhaustive explanations, and I see that as a, as a trivial claim in a friendly sense. Right? That's what it is to be in a causal series. Okay, 
None of this, however, is to say that all infinite series or even causally ordered infinite series are impossible. Uh, when we consider actually ordered series, Aquinas claims a different picture emerges. Okay, so I'm going to look at text 9. Um, and really just the second half of it. But midway through, uh, he picks up with and likewise. I just don't like the example he uses in the first half. <laughs> And likewise, it is accidental to this particular man as generator to be generated by another man, for he generates as a man and not as the son of another man. For all men generating hold one great and efficient cause, the great of a particular generator. Hence, it is not impossible for a man to be generated by man to infinity, but such a thing would be impossible if the generations of this man depended upon this man and on an elementary body and on the son and so on to infinity." So what Aquinas is saying there is he has no problem to say that there's been an infinite number of father-son relations leading up to me uh, because it doesn't presuppose that all those fathers and sons exist for me to go on and, you know, produce another generation, right? That would be embarrassing, right? <laughs> okay. right? Um, and so, because uh, he said this is, this is an accidental causal relation, not a per se causal relation. It doesn't presuppose the existence of the entire series for each subsequent generation. Okay, and so if he says, if, if that works, then it would seem we could have infinite prior series, and it seems then, for all we know, the world could be infinite. Okay. So in summary, St. Thomas seems to have proven, or at least sufficiently motivated, the following theses. A, absolute per se causal series cannot proceed to infinity, and I think there's two ways he can do that. B, accidental per, per causal series could proceed to infinity. C, there can be no actually infinite multitude, however it, might be, however it might be aggregated. And D, there could be, in fact, there are potentially infinite multitudes. Notice that, the, that premise two, the infinitist argument, is now deeply suspect, since there is no reason to think that each subsequent moment or occurrence in the history of the world presupposes the continued existence of all prior moments or occurrences, there is subsequently no reason to maintain that an infinite prior history of the world entails an actually infinite multitude. Thus, for all we know, the universe may have an infinite prior history. Right? Uh, and then I, I give you the quotation in 10 where Aquinas makes this point. Okay. All right. Now, let's talk about an objection, what I call the infinite multitude of souls objection. All right. I'm not sure where it originates. Uh, I think it's probably in the Muslims. Uh, I, but what I find interesting is Bonaventure really pushes this one really hard on St. Thomas. Okay. So in a number of places, Aquinas considers an objection to his rejection of premise two of the finitist argument, which he admits is, quote, fairly difficult, this objection, as it would show that, quote, if the world has existed forever, the number of souls must now be infinite. Right? So the objection is that, well, if, if the world's been around forever and we've been aggregating human beings forever, then you're going to have a completed aggregate, infinite aggregate of human souls hanging around in heaven, purgatory, or, or what have you. Okay. So here's how Thomas spells out the word in more detail. This is text 11. It's short. Further, if the world and generation always were, there have been an infinite number of men. But man's soul is immortal. Therefore, an infinite number of human souls would actually now exist, which is impossible. Therefore, it can be known with certainty that the world began, and not only is it known by faith. Okay. 
All right, the objection is that if the world has indeed endured for an infinite prior time, then there would have been an infinite number of prior generations of human beings, each member of which has an immortal soul. As such, there must be at present an actual infinite multitude of immortal human souls aggregated somehow in the hereafter. Thus, the eternity of the world does not entail merely a potentially infinite multitude of prior occurrences or moments, but also an infinitely, an actually infinite multitude of souls. On the assumption that there can be no actually infinite multitude, it seems we do, after all, have a demonstration that the world is temporally finite. Okay. Now, Aquinas' immediate reply is a bit underwhelming. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about why. So let's look at text 12. Some advocates of the eternity of the world have contended that human souls do not, do not survive the body. Some have maintained that nothing remains of all the souls except a separate intellect, the agent intellect, in the opinion of some, or also the possible intellect, in, in the view of others. Some have imagined a rotation of souls, saying that the same souls return to the bodies after several centuries, and some hold that it is not impossible for things to, to, to be actually infinite. It is possible. For, it's, not, it's not impossible for certain things to be actually infinite if there is no causal order among them. Okay. End quote. So in other words, those people who defend the eternity of the world, or the infinity of the world, have a lot of ways that they have tried to circumvent this sort of objection. For instance, many Arab commentators deny the immortality of the soul or entertain transmigration or, or monopsychic doctrines regarding the human soul. Others have denied that, that the actual infinite multitudes of accidentally related things are impossible when there is no causal ordering among them. That's all well and good inasmuch as we are concerned with what the infinitists say about on their own behalf, but that is a far cry from showing that their apologies are at all plausible. Okay. And St. Bonaventure, in, in, the, in the passage here, I'm going to spare us, it's long. He says, well, but wait, don't we claim to have a bunch of demonstrations contrary to this? Like, don't we claim that we can demonstrate that the human soul is immortal, that it only comes back in the body that it was originally in, that, you know, the monopsychic doctrines are false. And then as, as in Thomas himself said, I just showed you there can't be infinite multitudes. Okay, so it's, it's not clear that the... You know, the appeal to, well, here's what the Muslims say about this, uh, is, is it all effective? Because Thomas himself claims to have a bunch of demonstrations contrary to what they say about this. Okay. Now, there's an easier way for Thomas to get out of this. Um, and at, at one point he does it in the actual essay on the eternity of the world, where he just says, look, who says God had to be making humans for the entire du- duration of an infinite world? Maybe, you know, God... 6,000 years ago, just jumped in and threw the humans in, okay? So that doesn't entail, like, just the, the fact of the immortality of the soul itself doesn't entail the problem, okay? However, I think this is still a serious problem for St. Thomas. Okay, so about all that, I'm not so sure. Even if Aquinas gives us good reason to think that it's possible for there to be an eternal world with a finite number of humans, and I agree with him on that point, it still seems that on the hypothesis that there could have been an, an infinite world, there could have been an infinite number of human beings. God could just always have been creating humans. And therefore, there could have been a complete and infinite multitude of human souls. There isn't, but there could have been. Uh, Aquinas' position then entails that something is possible, which he himself seems to have demonstrated as impossible. You see, this, it's just a higher-order problem now. Okay? And I think Bill Craig pushes this on Thomas at one point, too. Thus, it seems incoherent for Aquinas to claim that the world might have been infinite in duration. 
So I think Thomas's preferred way of getting out the objection is not convincing. Okay. But I think I can get him out of it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, final section. Probable arguments and the epistemic possibility of real infinite multitudes. Does this mean that the, in, the finitist carries the day, right? I mean, do the Franciscans win, right? Okay, <laughs> be careful with that. All right. I do want the check, okay? So, well, <laughs> okay, well, the situation may, may be a bit more complicated than all that. Consider the following remarks from St. Thomas. This is text 14. Since these arguments do not conclude with strict, strict necessity, he's talking about the finitist argument here, although they are not entirely devoid of probability, I'm going to really hang on that probability thing, is enough to touch on them briefly so that the Catholic faith may not seem to rest on inept reasonings rather than on the unshakable basis of God's teaching. And so we, we deem it suitable to show how such arguments are met by those who have maintained the eternity of the world. All right. Now, interestingly, Aquinas here concedes that something like the finitist argument, though it does not strictly demonstrate its conclusion, is not entirely devoid of probability. What Thomas means by probability, I'm not quite sure. Okay. Um, I take it that what St. Thomas means here, um, this is my guess, is that someone who accepts that the world is indeed temporally finite on the basis of the arguments we've discussed is not in some sort of egregious intellectual error. The argument at the end of the day is pretty good. We might even say that someone who accepts the finitude of the world on such a basis is epistemically justified, though maybe we don't, you know, they're not warranted. Okay. We might have to say that someone who doesn't accept such an argument is likewise within his or her epistemic rights, but that is not to say that the finitist is without traction. Maybe they have considerable traction. Certainly, however, I take it that the degree that, that degrees of probability that the degrees of the probability that can enjoy short of strict demonst- short of strict demonstration, such that one uh, would be unreasonable. Well, let me start that again. I take it that there are degrees of probability that an argument can enjoy short of strict demonstration, such that one would be unreasonable to doubt it. Only faith can deliver certainty about the finitude of the world, but reason can get us a good way along that path. Curiously, and I'm just, I'm just unaware, I'm unaware that St. Thomas says this much in favor of the infinitist position. Uh, Aristotle's errors are understandable, but they are still errors and don't seem to give us even probable arguments. Now, maybe he says it somewhere. I'm happy to be corrected on that, but it seems that at least the argument we looked at, he just says there's there's a logical gaff here. It just doesn't work at all. Whereas the finitist argument comes from Bonaventure and says, yeah, it's pretty good. It's not that monster, but it's pretty good. Okay. There is uh, This is all especially interesting in light of the fact that at one point when addressing the infinity of the soul's objection, St. Thomas does claim, in a number of places he does this, quote, no demonstration. He doesn't just say they say this. He says no demonstration has yet been forthcoming that God cannot produce a multiple that is a multitude that is actually infinite. Okay, now even though it seemed like he gave us a demonstration of that a while back, okay, uh, but in the eternity of the world, I don't know the historical order of the texts, what have you, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. He does say there's no demonstration that you can't have with God's power an infinite multitude, an actually infinite multitude. Okay, I'm not sure that this is in fact consistent with Aquinas' apparent argument against all actually infinite multitudes uh, that we discussed earlier, but let's leave that aside for now. Uh, I'm aware of some commentators who say he just contradicts himself between question 7 and question 46. But it seems that what is going on here is that for St. Thomas, 
the finitist argument is non-demonstrative, even if probable, because the principle motivating its key premise is itself non-demonstrable, even if highly probable. That is, since there is no absolute demonstration that God cannot create an actually infinite multitude, though Aquinas thinks that, that thinks this is probably the case, there is no absolute demonstration that the world is finite, though Aquinas thinks this is probably the case. Thus, even though we have pretty good reasons to think that the world is finite, for all we know for certain, right, proceeding from the certainty of faith, it may well be infinite. Does this mean that St. Thomas is simply inconsistent in his assessment of the possibility of actually infinite multitudes? I don't believe we need sand, saddle the angelic doctor with inconsistency at this point. Recall this passage we highlighted earlier, quote, and some hold that it is not impossible for certain things to be actually infinite if there is no causal order among them. Given this passage, and the one we just highlighted, uh, two important considerations arise. First, Aquinas claims that it might be possible for God to create an actually infinite multitude. I mean, that you just said. And secondly, only he can do that, he, God, can only do that if there is no causal ordering among the members of the multitude. So given that first claim, it seems that we are not talking about a multitude collected by a temporal process of aggregation, bit by bit, as it were. God creates a temporally. A multitude would come all at once, an internal instant by the single act of a first cause. Further, since the multitude is not a causal order, the ultimate explanation would not come from within it. Thus, there is no need for a, a definite numbering of the multitude in order for it to be explained as such. God, from without of the multitude, would provide a singular finite explanation. Finite in the sense of numerically finite. Infinite power. Okay. So maybe the problem with actually infinite multitudes is that they could not be collected by aggregation. And that is, that is the way things typically work in nature. Infinite aggregation, however, would not be a problem for a divine creator. Moreover, if such a multitude were a causal, were a causal order supposedly providing its own explanation, then it would seem that it would be inexplicable because an infinite order is always incomplete. However, if the infinite multitude were explained externally, ultimately it is not an independent causal order, then it would seem that it could have a complete explanation even if it were infinite. Thus, we might not be entirely without reasons to entertain, consistent with much of what Aquinas has argued earlier, that a really infinite multitude is epistemically possible. We can't rule it out. God might have done it. Moreover, if such an infinite multitude cannot be absolutely ruled out, however improbable, we cannot absolutely rule out the infinity of the world. Is, this, is, this, is any of this a, a defensible, airtight argument? Hardly, right? Or at least I haven't come close to providing you with such an argument today. And I do worry that St. Thomas has not been entirely consistent on this issue. Okay, but I think we can gloss this a little bit. Nevertheless, since all that he needs is epistemic possibility, the bar is really low here. He just needs for all we know. All right. Thank you.